Chapter 4 of The Eagle's Shadow by James Branch Cabell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John M. Wilson, originally released through Bureau 42. Donated to LibriVox with his express permission. 4. The 1245, for a wonder, was on time, and there descended from it a big, blonde young man, who did not look in the least like a fortune hunter. Miss Hugonan resented this. Manifestly, he looked clean and honest for the deliberate purpose of deceiving her. Very well. She'd show him. He was quite unembarrassed. He shook hands cordially, then he shook hands with the groom, who, you may believe it, was grinning in a most unprofessional manner because Master Billy was back again at Selwood. Subsequently, in his old decisive way, he announced they would walk to the house, as his legs needed stretching. The insolence of it! Quite as if he had something to say to Margaret in private, and couldn't wait a minute. Beyond doubt, this was a young man who must be taken down a peg or two, and that at once. Of course, she wasn't going to walk back with him, a pretty figure they'd cut strolling through the fields, like a house girl and the milkman on a Sunday afternoon. She would simply say she was too tired to walk, and that would end the matter. So she said she thought the exercise would do them both good. They came presently with desultory chat to a meadow bravely decked in all the gods of spring. About them the day was clear, the air bland. Spring had revamped her ageless fripperies of tender leaves and bird cries and sweet warm odors for the adornment of this meadow. Above it she had set a Turkish sky, splashed here and there with little clouds that were like whipped cream, and upon it she had scattered largesse a denies shower of buttercups. Altogether, she had made of it a particularly dangerous meadow for a man and a maid to frequent. Yet there Mr. Woods paused under a burgeoning maple, paused resolutely, with the lures of spring thick about him, compassed with every snare of scent and sound and color that the witch is a mistress of. Margaret hoped he had a pleasant passage over. Her father, thank you, is in the pink of condition. Oh, yes, she was quite well. She hoped Mr. Woods would not find America. Well, Peggy, said Mr. Woods, then we'll have it out right here. His insolence was so surprising that, in order to recover herself, Margaret actually sat down under the maple tree. Peggy, indeed. Why, she hadn't been called Peggy for, no, not for four whole years. Because I intend to be friends, you know, said Mr. Woods and about them the maple leaves made a little island of somber green, around which more vivid grasses rippled and dimpled under the fitful spring breezes, and everywhere leaves lisped to one another, and birds shrilled insistently. It was a perilous locality. I fancy Billy Woods was out of his head when he suggested being friends in such a place. Friends indeed! You would have thought from the airy confidence with which he spoke that Margaret had come safely to forty year, and wore steel-rimmed spectacles, but Miss Hugonan merely cast down her eyes, and was aware of no reason why they shouldn't be. She was sure he must be hungry, and she thought luncheon must be ready by now. In his soul, Mr. Woods observed that her lashes were long, long beyond all reason. Lacking the numbers that Petrarch flowed in, he did not venture even to himself to characterize them further. But oh, how queer it was that they should be pure gold at the roots. She must have dipped them in the inkpot. And oh, the strong, sudden, bewildering curve of them. He could not recall at the present moment ever noticing quite such lashes anywhere else. 
Now it was highly improbable that there were such lashes anywhere else. Perhaps a few of the superior angels might have had such lashes. He resolved for the future to attend church more regularly. Aloud, Mr. Woods observed that in that case they had better shake hands. It would have been ridiculous to contest the point. The dignified course was to shake hands, since he insisted on it, and then to return at once to Selwood. Margaret Hugonan had a pretty hand, and Mr. Woods, as an artist, could not well fail to admire it. Still, he needn't have looked at it as though he had never before seen anything quite like it. He needn't have neglected to return it, and when Miss Hugonan reclaimed it, after a decent interval, he needn't have laughed, in a manner that compelled her to laugh too. These things were unnecessary and annoying, as they caused Margaret to forget that she despised him. For the time being, will you believe it, she actually thought he was rather nice. I acted like an ass, said Mr. Woods tragically. Oh, yes, I did, you know. But if you'll forgive me for having been an ass, I'll forgive you for throwing me over for Teddy Anstruther. And at the wedding, I'll dance through any number of pairs of patent leathers you choose to mention. So that was the way at it. Teddy Anstruther, indeed. Why, Teddy was a dark little man with brown eyes, just the sort of man she most objected to. How could anyone ever possibly fancy a brown-eyed man? Then, for no apparent reason, Margaret flushed, and Billy, who had stretched his great length of limb on the grass beside her, noted it with a pair of the bluest eyes in the world, and thought it vastly becoming. Billy, said she impulsively, and the name, having slipped out once by accident, it would have been absurd to call him anything else afterward. It was horrid of you to refuse to take any of that money. But I didn't want it, he protested. Good Lord, I'd only have done something foolish with it. It was awfully square of you, Peggy, to offer to divide, but I didn't want it, you see. I don't want to be a millionaire and give up the rest of my life to founding libraries and explaining to people that if they never spend any money on amusements. They'll have a great deal by the time they're too old to enjoy it. I'd rather paint pictures. So that I think Margaret must have endeavored at some time to make him accept part of Frederick R. Woods's money. You make me feel and look like a thief, she reproved him. Then Billy laughed a little. You don't look in the least like one, he reassured her. You look like an uncommonly honest, straightforward young woman, Mr. Woods added handsomely and I don't believe you'd purloin under the severest temptation. She thanked him for his testimonial, with all three dimples in evidence. This was unsettling. He hedged. Except, perhaps, said he. Yes, queried Margaret after a pause. However, she questioned him with her head drooped forward, her brows raised, and as this gave him the full effect of her eyes, Mr. Woods became quite certain that there was at least one thing she might be expected to rob him of, and wisely declined to mention it. Margaret did not insist on knowing what it was. Perhaps she heard it thumping under his waistcoat, where it was behaving very queerly. So they sat in silence for a while. Then Margaret fell a-humming to herself, and the air, will you believe it, chanced by the purest accident, to be that foolish, senseless old song they used to sing together four years ago. Billy chuckled. Let's, he obscurely pleaded. Spring prompted her. Oh, where have you been, Billy boy? queried Margaret's wonderful contralto. Oh, where have you been, Billy boy, Billy boy? Oh, where have you been, charming Billy? 
She sang it in a low, hushed voice, just over her breath, not looking at him, however. And oh, what a voice, thought Billy Woods, a voice that was honey and gold and velvet and all that is most sweet and rich and soft in the world. Find me another voice like that, you prima donna. Find me a simile for it, you uninventive poets. Indeed, I'd like to see you do it. But he chimed in, nevertheless, with his pleasant, throaty baritone, and lifted his own part quite creditably. I've been to seek a wife. She's the joy of my life. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. Only Billy sang it father, just as they used to do. And when they sang it through, did Margaret and Billy, sang of the dimple in her chin and the ringlets in her hair, and of the cherry pies she achieved with such celerity, sang as they sat in the spring-decked meadow every word of that inane old song that is so utterly senseless and so utterly unforgettable. It was a quite idiotic performance. I set it down to the snares of spring, to her insidious, delightful snares of scent and sound and color that, for the moment at least, had trapped these young people into loving life infinitely. But I wonder who is responsible for that tatter of rhyme and melody that had come to them from nowhere in particular. Mr. Woods, as he sat up at the conclusion of the singing vigorously to applaud, would have shared his last possession, his ultimate crust, with that unknown benefactor of mankind. Indeed, though, the heart of Mr. Woods just now was full of loving kindness and capable of any freakish magnanimity. For will it be believed, Mr. Woods, who four years ago had thrown over a fortune and exiled himself from his native land, rather than propose marriage to Margaret Hugonan, had no sooner come again into her presence and looked once into her perfectly fathomless eyes than he could no more have left her of his own accord than a moth can turn his back to a lighted candle. He had fancied himself entirely cured of that boy and girl nonsense. His broken heart after the first few months had not interfered in the least with a naturally healthy appetite. And behold, here was the old malady raging again in his veins, and with renewed fervor, and all because the girl had a pretty face. I think you will agree with me that in the conversation I have recorded, Margaret had not displayed any great wisdom, or learning, or tenderness, or wit, nor in fine any of the qualities a man might naturally look for in a helpmate. Yet at the precise moment he handed his baggage check to the groom, Mr. Woods had made up his mind to marry her. In an instant he had fallen head over heels in love, or to whittle accuracy to a point, he had discovered that he had never fallen out of love. And if you had offered him an empress, or fetched Helen of Troy from the grave for his delectation, he would have laughed you to scorn. In his defense, I can only plead that Margaret was an unusually beautiful woman. It is all very well to flourish a death's head at the feast and bid my lady go paint herself an inch thick, for to this favor she must come. And it is quite true that the reddest lips in the universe may give vent to slander and lies, and the brightest eyes be set in the dullest head, and the most roseate of complexions be purchased at the corner drugstore, but say what you will, a pretty woman is a pretty woman, and while she continues so, no amount of common sense or experience will prevent a man on provocation from alluring, coaxing, even treating her to make a fool of him. We like it, and I think they like it too. So Mr. Woods lost his heart on a fine spring morning, 
and was unreasonably elated over the fact. And Margaret? Margaret was content. 5. They talked for a matter of a half-hour in the fashion aforetime recorded. Not very wise nor witty talk, if you will, but very pleasant to make. There were many pauses. There was much laughter over nothing in particular. There were any number of sentences ambitiously begun that ended nowhere. Altogether, it was just the sort of talk for a man and a maid. Yet some twenty minutes later, Mr. Woods, preparing for luncheon in the privacy of his chamber, gave a sudden exclamation. Then he sat down and rumpled his hair thoroughly. "'Good Lord!' he groaned. "'I'd forgotten all about that damned money. "'Oh, you ass! "'You abject ass! "'Why, she's one of the richest women in America, "'and you're only a fifth-rate painter, "'with a paltry thousand or so a year. "'You marry her. "'Why, I dare say she's refused a hundred men better than you. "'She'd think you were mad. "'Why, she'd think you were after the money. "'She'd... "'Oh, she'd only think you a precious cheeky ass she would and should be quite right you are an ass billy woods you ought to be locked up in some nice quiet stable where your hee-hawing wouldn't disturb people you need a keeper you do he sat for some ten minutes aghast afterward he rose and threw back his shoulders and drew a deep breath no we aren't an ass he addressed his reflection in the mirror as he carefully knotted his tie we're only a poor, chuckle-headed moth who's been looking at a star too long. It's a bright star, Billy, but it isn't for you. So we're going to be sensible now. We're going to get a telegram tomorrow that will call us away from Selwood. We aren't coming back anymore, either. We're simply going to continue painting fifth-rate pictures and hoping that someday she'll find the right man and be very, very happy. Nevertheless, he decided that a blue tie would look better and was very particular in arranging it. At the same moment, Margaret stood before her mirror and tidied her hair for luncheon and assured her image in the glass that she was a weak-minded fool. She pointed out to herself the undeniable fact that Billy, having formerly refused to marry her, oh, ignominy, seemed pleasant-spoken enough now that she had become an heiress. His refusal to accept part of her fortune was a very flimsy device. It simply meant he hoped to get all of it. Oh, he did, did he? Margaret powdered her nose viciously. She saw through him. His honest bearing she very plainly perceived to be the result of consummate hypocrisy. In his laughter her keen ear detected a hollow ring, and his courteous manner she found at bottom mere servility. And finally she demonstrated, to her own satisfaction at least, that his charm of manner was of exactly the same sort that had been possessed by many other eminently distinguished criminals. How did she do this? My dear sir, you had best inquire of your mother, or your sister, or your wife, or any other lady that your fancy dictates. They know. I am sure I don't. And after it all, Oh dear, dear, said Margaret, I do wish he didn't have such nice eyes. 6. On the way to luncheon, Mr. Woods came upon Adele Haggage, and Hugh Van Orden, both of whom he knew very much engrossed in one another in a nook under the stairway. To Billy it seemed just now quite proper that everyone should be in love. Wasn't it, after all, the most pleasant condition in the world? So he greeted them with a semi-paternal smile that caused Adele to flush a little, for she was, let us say, interested in Mr. Van Orden. That was tolerably well known. In fact, Margaret prompted by Mrs. Haggage, it must be confessed, 
had invited him to Selwood for the especial purpose of entertaining Miss Adele Haggage. For he was a good match, and Mrs. Haggage, as an experienced chaperone, knew the value of country houses. Very unexpectedly, however, the boy had developed a disconcerting tendency to fall in love with Margaret, who snubbed him promptly and unmercifully. He had accordingly fallen back on Adele, and Mrs. Haggage had regained both her trust in Providence and her temper. In the breakfast room, where luncheon was laid out, the colonel greeted Mr. Woods with the enthusiasm a sailor shipwrecked on a desert island might conceivably display toward the boat crew come to rescue him. The colonel liked Billy, and furthermore the poor colonel's position at Selwood just now was not utterly unlike that of the supposititious mariner. Were I minded to venture into metaphor, I should picture him as clinging desperately to the rock of an old fogeyism and surrounded by weltering seas of advanced thought. Colonel Hugonan himself was not advanced in his ideas. Also, he had forceful opinions as to the ultimate destination of those who were. Then Billy was presented to the men of the party, Mr. Felix Canaston and Mr. Petheridge Jukesbury, Mrs. Haggage he knew slightly, and Kathleen Samarez, he had known very well indeed some six years previously before she had ever heard of Miguel Samarez, and when Billy was still an undergraduate. She was a widow now, and not well-to-do, and Mr. Woods's first thought on seeing her was that a man was a fool to write verses, and that she looked like just the sort of woman to preserve them. His second was that he had verged on imbecility when he had fancied he admired that slender, dark-haired type. A woman's hair ought to be an enormous coronal of sunlight. A woman ought to have very large, candid eyes of a color between that of sapphires and that of the spring heavens, only infinitely more beautiful than either. And all petticoated persons, differing from this description, were manifestly quite unworthy of any serious consideration. So his eyes turned to Margaret, who had no eyes for him. She had forgotten his existence, with an utterness that verged on ostentation. And if it had been any one else, Billy would have surmised she was in a temper. But that angel in a temper? Nonsense! And oh, what eyes she had, and what lashes, and what hair, and altogether how adorable she was, and what a wonder the admiring gods hadn't snatched her up to Olympus long ago. Thus far, Mr. Woods. But if Miss Hugonan was somewhat taciturn, her counselors in diverse schemes for benefiting the universe were an opulent vein. Billy heard them silently. I have spent the entire morning by the lake, Mr. Canaston informed the party at large, in company with a mockingbird who was practicing a new aria. It was a wonderful place. The trees were lisping verses to themselves, and the sky overhead was like a robin's egg in color, and a faint wind was making tucks and ruches and pleats all over the water, quite as if the breezes had set up in business as mantua-makers. I fancy they thought they were working on a great sheet of blue silk, for it was very like that, and every once in a while a fish would leap and leave a splurge of bubble and foam behind that you would have sworn was an inserted lace medallion. Mr. Canaston, as you are doubtless aware, is the author of The King's Quest and other volumes of verse. He's a full-bodied young man with hair of no particular shade, and if his green eyes are a little aged, his manner is very youthful. His voice in speaking is wonderfully pleasing, and he has a habit of cocking his head on one side in a bird-like fashion. 
Indeed, Mr. Petheridge Jukesbury observed, it is very true that God made the country and man made the town. A little more wine, please. Mr. Jukesbury is a prominent worker in the cause of philanthropy and temperance. He is ponderous and bland, and for the rest he is president of the Society for the Suppression of Nicotine and the Nude, vice-president of the Anti-Inebriation League, secretary of the Incorporated Brotherhood of Benevolence, and the bearer of diverse similar honors. I am never really very happy in the country, Mrs. Somers dissented. It reminds me so constantly of our rural drama. I'm always afraid the quartet may come on and sing something. Kathleen Epps Somers, as I hope you do not need to be told, is the well-known lecturer before women's clubs, and the author of many sympathetic stories of nature and animal life, of the kind that have had such a vogue of late. There was always an indefinable air of pathos about her. As Hudson Wick put it, one felt somehow that her mother had been of a domineering disposition, and that she took after her father. "'Ah, dear lady,' Mr. Canaston cried playfully, "'you, like many of us, have become an alien to nature in your quest of a mere earthly paradox. Epigrams are all very well, but I fancy there is more happiness to be derived from a single impulse, from a vernal wood, than from a whole problem play of smart sayings. So few of us are natural.' Mr. Canaston complained with a dulcet sigh. We are too sophisticated. Our very speech lacks the tang of outdoor life. Why should we not love nature, the great mother who is, I grant you, the necessity of various useful inventions in her angry moods, but who, in her kindly moments— He paused with a wry face. I beg your pardon, said he, but I believe I've caught rheumatism lying by that confounded pond. Mrs. Samarez rallied the poet with a pale smile. That comes of communing with nature, she reminded him, and it serves you rightly, for natural communications corrupt good epigrams. I prefer nature with wide margins and uncut leaves. She spoke in her best platform manner. Art should be an expurgated edition of nature, with all the unpleasant parts left out. And I am sure, Mrs. Samarez added, handsomely and clinching her argument, that Mr. Canaston gives us much better sunsets in his poems than I have ever seen in the West. He acknowledged this with a bow. Not sherry. Claret, if you please, said Mr. Jukesbury. Art should be an expurgated edition of nature, he repeated with a suave chuckle. Do you know, I consider that admirably put, Mrs. Samarez. Admirably upon my word. Ah, uh, if our latter-day writers would only take that saying to heart— we do not need to be told of the vice and corruption prevalent, I am sorry to say, among the very best people. What we really need is continually to be reminded of the fact that pure hearts and homes and happy faces are to be found today alike in the palatial residences of the wealthy and in the humbler homes of those less abundantly favored by fortune. And yet, dwelling together in harmony and Christian resignation and, uh, comparatively moderate circumstances. Surely, Mrs. Samaras protested, art has nothing to do with morality. Art is a process. You see a thing in a certain way. You make your reader see it in the same way, or try to. If you succeed, the result is art. If you fail, it may be the book of the year. Enduring immortality and uh, the patronage of the reading public, Mr. Jukesbury placidly insisted, will be awarded in the end only to those who dwell upon the true. 
the beautiful, and the uh, respectable. Art must cheer. It must be optimistic and edifying and um, suitable for young persons. It must have an uplift, a leaven of righteousness, a, uh, a sort of moral baking powder. It must utterly eschew the uh, unpleasant and repugnant details of life. It is, if I may so express myself, not at home in the menage a trois, or uh, the representation of the nude. Yes, another glass of claret, if you please. I quite agree with you, said Mrs. Haggage in her deep voice. Sarah Ellen Haggage is, of course, the well-known author of Child Labor in the South and The Downtrodden Afro-American and other notable contributions to literature. She is also the Madam President both of the Society for the Betterment of Civic Government and Sewerage and of the Ladies' League for the Edification of the Impecunious. And I am glad to see, Mrs. Haggage presently went on, that the literature of the day is so largely beginning to chronicle the sayings and doings of the laboring classes. The virtues of the humble must be admitted in spite of their dissolute and unhygienic tendencies. Yes, Mrs. Haggage added meditatively, our literature is undoubtedly acquiring a more elevated tone. At last we are shaking off the scintillant and unwholesome influence of the French. Ah, the French, sighed Mr. Canaston, a people who think depravity the soul of wit. Their art is mere artfulness. They care nothing for nature. No, Mrs. Haggage assented. They prefer nastiness. All French books are immoral. I ran across one the other day that was simply hideously indecent, unfit for a modest woman to read, and I can assure you that none of its author's other books are any better. I purchased the entire set at once and read them carefully in order to make sure that I was perfectly justified in warning my working girls' classes against them. I wish to misjudge no man, not even a member of a nation notoriously devoted to absent and illicit relations. She breathed heavily and looked at Mr. Woods as if somehow he was responsible. Then she gave the name of the book to Petheridge Jukesbury. He wished to have it placed on the Index Expurgatorius of the Brotherhood of Benevolence, he said. Dear, dear, Felix Knaston sighed, as Mr. Jukesbury made a note of it, you are all so practical. You perceive an evil and proceed at once, in your common-sense way, to crush it, to stamp it out. Now, I can merely lament certain unfortunate tendencies of the age. I am quite unable to contend against them. Do you know, Mr. Knaston continued gaily as he trifled with a bunch of grapes, I feel horribly out of place among you. Here is Mrs. Samarez creating an epidemic of useful and improving knowledge throughout the country by means of her charming lectures. Here is Mrs. Haggage, the mainspring, if I may say so, of any number of educational and philanthropic alarm clocks, which will some day rouse the sleeping public from its lethargy. And here is my friend Jukesbury, whose eloquent pleas for a higher life have turned so many workmen from gin and improvidence, and which in a printed form are disseminated even in such remote regions as Africa, where I am told they have produced the most satisfactory results upon the unsophisticated but polygamous monarchs of that continent. And here, above all, is Miss Hugonin, utilizing the vast power of money, which I am credibly informed is a very good thing to have, though I cannot pretend to speak from experience, 
and casting whole bakerifuls of bread upon the waters of charity. And here am I, the idle singer of an empty day, a mere drone in this hive of philanthropic bees. Dear, dear, said Mr. Canaston enviously, what a thing it is to be practical. And he laughed toward Margaret in his whimsical way. Miss Hugonan had been strangely silent, but she returned Mr. Canaston's smile and began to take part in the conversation. You're only an ignorant child, she rebuked him, and a very naughty child, too, to make fun of us in this fashion. Yes, Mr. Canaston assented, I am willfully ignorant. The world adores ignorance, and where ignorance is kissed, it is folly to be wise. Tomorrow I shall read you a chapter from my Defense of Ignorance, which my confiding publisher is going to bring out in the autumn. So the table talk went on, and now Margaret bore a part therein. However, I do not think we need record it further. Mr. Woods listened in a sort of daze. Adele Haggage and Hugh Van Orden were conversing in low tones at one end of the table. The colonel was eating his luncheon, silently, and with a certain air of resignation, so Billy Woods was left alone to attend and marvel. The ideas they advanced seemed to him, for the most part, sensible. What puzzled him was the uniform gravity which they accorded equally, as it appeared to him, to the discussion of the most pompous platitudes and of the most arrant nonsense. They were always serious, and the general tone of infallibility, Billy thought, could be warranted only by a vast fund of inexperience. But in the main, they advocated theories he had always held. Excellent theories, he considered, and he was seized with an unreasonable desire to repudiate every one of them, for it seemed to him that every one of them was aimed at Margaret's approval. It did not matter to whom a remark was ostensibly addressed, always at its conclusion, the speaker glanced more or less openly toward Miss Hugonan. She was the audience to which they zealously played, thought Billy, and he wondered. I think I have said that, owing to the smallness of the house party, luncheon was served in the breakfast room. The dining room at Selwood is very rarely used because Margaret declares its size makes a meal there equivalent to eating out of doors. And I must confess that the breakfast room is far cozier. The room in the first place is of reasonable dimensions. It is hung with Flemish tapestries from designs by Van Eyck, representing the Four Seasons, but the walls and ceilings are paneled in oak, and over the mantle carved in bass relief the inevitable eagle is displayed. The mantle stood behind Margaret's chair, and over her golden head, half-protestingly, half-threateningly, with its wings outstretched to the uttermost, the eagle brooded as he had once brooded over Frederick R. Woods. The old man sat contentedly beneath that symbol of what he had achieved in life. He had started, as the phrase runs, from nothing. He had made himself a power. To him the eagle meant that crude, incalculable power of wealth he gloried in. And to Billy Woods, the eagle meant identically the same thing, and... I am sorry to say he began to suspect that the eagle was really the audience to whom Miss Hugonan's friends so zealously played. Perhaps the misanthropy of Mr. Woods was not wholly unconnected with the fact that Margaret never looked at him. She'd show him the fortune hunter. So her eyes never strayed toward him, and her attention never left him. At the end of luncheon she could have enumerated for you every morsel he had eaten, every glare he had directed toward Canaston. Every beseeching look he had turned to her. Of course he had taken sherry, dry sherry. Hadn't he told her, four years ago, 
It was the first day she had ever worn the white organdy dotted with purple sprigs, and they sat by the lake so late that afternoon that Frederick R. Woods finally sent for them to come to dinner. Hadn't he told her then that only women and children cared for sweet wines? Of course he had. The villain. Billy, too, had his emotions. To hear that paragon, that queen among women, discant of work done in the slums and of the mysteries of sweatshops, to hear her state offhand that there were seventeen hundred fifty thousand children among the ages of ten and fifteen years employed in the mines and factories of the United States, to hear her discourse of foreign missions as glibly as though she had been born and nurtured in Zambezi land. All these things filled him with an odd sense of alienation. He wasn't worthy of her, and that was a fact. He was only a dumb idiot, and half the words that were falling thick and fast from philanthropic lips about him might as well have been hailstones. For all the benefit he was deriving from them, he couldn't understand half, she said. In consequence, he very cordially detested the people who could, especially that grimacing ass Canaston. Altogether, neither Mr. Woods nor Miss Hugonan got much comfort from their luncheon. 7. After luncheon, Billy had a quiet half-hour with the colonel in the smoking-room. Said Billy, between puffs of a cigar, Peggy's changed a bit, the colonel grunted. Perhaps he dared not trust to words. Seems to have made some new friends, a more vigorous grunt. Cultured lot they seem, said Mr. Woods. Anxious to do good in the world, too. Philanthropic, said, eh? A snort this time. Uh, said Mr. Woods. There was dawning suspicion in his tone. The colonel looked about him. My boy, said he, you thank your stars you don't get that money. And depend upon it, there never was a gold ship yet that wasn't followed. Pirates? Billy Woods suggested helpfully. Pirates are human beings, said Colonel Hugonan with dignity. Sharks, my boy. Sharks. 8. That evening, after proper deliberation, Celestine, Miss Hugonan commanded, Get out that little yellow dress with the little red bandana handkerchiefs on it. And for heaven's sake, stop pulling my hair out by the roots, unless you want a raving maniac on your hands, Celestine. Whereby she had landed me in a quandary. For how, pray, is it possible for me, a simple-minded male, fittingly to depict for you the clothes of Margaret, the innumerable vanities, the quaint devices, the pleasing conceits with which she delighted to enhance her comeliness? The thing is beyond me. Let us keep discreetly out of her wardrobe, you and I. Otherwise, I should have to prattle of an infinity of mysteries, of her scarfs, feathers, laces, gloves, girdles, knots, hats, shoes, fans, and slippers, of her embroideries, rings, pins, pendants, ribbons, spangles, bracelets, and chains. In fine, there would be no end to the list of gewgaws that went to make Margaret Hugonan even more adorable than nature had fashioned her. For when you come to think of it, it takes the craft and skill and life-work of a thousand men to dress one girl properly. And in Margaret's case, I protest that every one of them, could he have beheld the result of their united labors, would have so gloried in his own part therein that there would have been no putting up with any of the lot. Yet when I think of the tiny shoes she affected, patent leather ones mostly, with a seam running straight up the middle, and you may guess the exact date of our comedy by knowing in what year these shoes were modish, the string of fat pearls she so often wore about her round full throat, the white frocks, say, 
with arabesques of blue all over it, that Felix Canaston said reminded him of Ruskin's tombstone, or that other white and blue one, Décolleté, that was which I swear seraphic mantua makers had woven out of mists and the skies of June. When I remember these things, I repeat, almost am I tempted to become a bootmaker, and a lapidary, and a milliner, and in fight an adept in all the other arts and trades and sciences that go to make a well-groomed American girl what she is. The incredible fruit of grafted centuries. The period after the list of time's achievements. Just that I might describe Margaret to you properly. But the thing is beyond me. I leave such considerations then to Celestine, and resolve for the future rigorously to eschew all such gods. Meanwhile, if an untutored masculine description will content you, Margaret, I have on reliable feminine authority, was one of the very few blondes whose complexions can carry off reds and yellows. This particular gown, I remember it perfectly, was of a dim, dull yellow, flounceful, if I may coin a word, diaphanous, expansive. I have not the least notion what fabric composed it, but scattered about it in unexpected places were diamond-shaped red things that I am credibly informed are called medallions. The general effect of it may be briefly characterized as grateful to the eye and dangerous to the heart, and to a rational train of thought, quite fatal, for it was cut low in the neck, and Margaret's neck and shoulders would have drawn madrigals from a bench of bishops. And in consequence, Billy Woods ate absolutely no dinner that evening. End of chapter 8